Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> For too long, we've gotten out of the habit of in our services, I don't know if we did it every single Sunday, but um, inviting people to come to the front and kneel here and pray for whatever burdens are on your own heart, may not want to share with anybody but God. That has in the past been a part of our services and we've just gotten out of the habit, so we want to restore that. So this morning, especially now that we have a beautiful altar um, to kneel at, we want to invite you just to come, those of you that want to come and pray, kneel here, and then I'll close in prayer, and then we will proceed with the rest of the service. So, those of you that want to come and pray, do so now. Father in heaven, it's good to quiet our hearts before you. We're told in scripture that you are the only one with whom we have to do. So we direct, Lord, those <clears throat> deepest hopes, burdens, sorrows, fears, everything, Lord, that only you can take care of. We acknowledge that unto you. We pray, Lord, that you would minister to every heart, accomplish what only you can do, give guidance and direction and help and supply. You are all-sufficient. And we're grateful for it. And we commit unto you today our hearts. We think specifically of some of our 
congregation members today that are ill and some serious enough difficulty discovering what the cause is. We pray for them. We pray, Lord, for spiritual needs. We pray that you would help us also to recognize what are spiritual needs, what are things we need on, in our own hearts, what is assaults from the enemy and accusations that are untrue. We just pray, Lord, that you would help us to discern our needs and then bring them to you with confidence that you are able to handle anything we ever bring to you. All of this is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. In the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1, I want to read the whole uh, chapter, just 14 verses, and so <clears throat> we'll go ahead and read all of it. Reading from the, this morning from the New King James Version, <clears throat> God who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they, that's the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? 
Now, briefly here, which we don't need to get into necessarily, but just to explain his reference to angels. There was some Jewish thinking, and it gets into the notion that there were called, what were called emanations that flowed from God to us. And angels were messengers of truth and so forth. Um, he's correcting some of that, the writer of the Hebrews, and is exalting Jesus to the place that he deserves. Even the place that Jesus deserves, he's exalting him in regard to his, the incarnation in which Jesus emptied himself, not of deity, but he reduced himself and became submissive to be a human. That was enough right there of a devaluation, of a demeaning. He assumed the position of a human. Then, as a human, he endured rejection, mocking, ultimately crucifixion, an ignominious death, but a mighty resurrection and ascension back into heaven. The period of time that Jesus clothed himself with humanness, we call his humiliation. There was a period of time, never did he cease to be God, but he, the term is used in Philippians, he emptied himself and became obedient to all that I just spoke. But then this, the writer here, and we're not certain who the writer is of Hebrews. Many used to think it was Paul, and that's still a pretty popular opinion. Some think it was uh, Apollos, who's mentioned in Scripture. Um, we're not certain, but nevertheless... The exaltation of Jesus is the aim of Hebrews. And the word, one of the most familiar words in, the, in Hebrews is the word better. We have a better atonement. We have a better Savior. We have a better high priest. We have a better sacrifice, a better atonement. We have better promises. So in every way, after Jesus divulged uh, and divested himself. He is exalted to the highest and therefore the argument in Hebrews is, especially from verse 1, in the past God spoke to us by human prophets, but now he spoke to us by his son. That's the final word. That's the ultimate word. That's the ultimate authority. And then the question is asked very early in this book, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So it, it's meant, the book of Hebrews, is to exalt Jesus, put him in his proper place in our view and our faith, and also 
to sober us up as to who's speaking to us and who it is. Hebrews has this little phrase that he is the only one with whom we have to do. So this is, this is a tremendous chapter in which we see the Father introduced to us through the Son. The verse, verse 3, is the primary verse that I want to look at. Jesus, it says, is the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. We'll stop for a moment there. No man has seen the Father, the Bible says, all through the Old Testament. You couldn't look on God's face. Even when Moses asked God, could I see your glory? God said, you can't, or you'll perish, you'll die, you can't, can't take it. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand as I pass by. And you can behold my holiness and my glory in a shielded sense, in a reduced sense. So all through, all through the centuries of God's revelation, we know a lot about God. We know his law, which springs from his nature. So we know much. But everything points toward the Father finally revealing, revealing himself as completely as could be done by sending his Son. And the word here that Jesus, it says, is the express image. Other versions say he is the exact representation. Now, there's a reference here. A carved piece of wood, very hard wood that would keep its shape, or a piece of metal was impressed onto wax or molten metal to transfer an image from this carved metal or wood to something else, wax, molten metal, or whatever. And it's intended to be exact an exact copy. Coins, whatever. Seals that used to be used on documents. They are to be a faithful, exact representation of the form that was used to be impressed into the wax. And it established authority. When you took string or whatever and had a seal on a door and you impressed it with the image of the governor or the Caesar or whatever, it authenticated it and it also told you, you better not mess with it. That's what this phrase, 
He is the exact representation of the Father. So, that's why Jesus could say to Philip, Philip, he, Philip said, show us the Father. Jesus said, you've already seen the Father. I am the exact representation of the Father. So if you see me, you've seen the Father. When we with the eye of faith read the New Testament and read about all that Jesus did, that's the exact representation of the nature. Here, this version uses the word person. He's the exact representation of the nature of the Father. The person, the heart of the Father. I'm seeing God's true self when I see Jesus as he walked, taught, reacted, preached. Everything he did is the exact representation of God. It's an unspeakable privilege. None of us could come up with the words. We can't do, we can't give the right do to what God's done in sending His Son Jesus to walk among us. And we see Him today through His Word and then through the Holy Spirit who, it says, reminds us of Him. Jesus said, I'm leaving. The disciples were initially grieved, worried. They didn't know what in the world. He said, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm returning to the Father. But I will not leave you orphans. I will send you another comforter. He, it says, will reveal me to you. So I have all the light that I need. In particular, in the life of Jesus, the actions of Jesus, the preaching, the teaching, the miracles, the rebukes, I see the Father. There are seven things. I'm sure it's not an exhaustive list. There are seven things that Jesus revealed and reveals about the Father. I don't know if this is the best order, but it's the best we could come up with. First thing, especially from this passage, this first chapter, authority. There is no authority beyond God. It is absolutely stunning that pipsqueak humans like us would ever think of arguing with God, of trying to barter with Him, or to correct Him. Several times, the disciples, notably Peter, corrected Jesus. He said, feed the 5,000. Well, you can't do that. Then, a couple months later, they totally forgot that. And he says, feed the 4,000. Well, we can't do that. We don't have enough money to buy food. But it gets more serious. Jesus said, 
on the eve, virtually, of the crucifixion, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'll be tried. I will be mocked. They will spit on me. They will crucify me. The third day, I'll rise from the dead. They were not only mystified, but Peter took it upon himself. It says he took Jesus, doing Jesus a favor, not to embarrass Jesus by correcting him in front of the other disciples. And he took him aside and he said, and what a, con what a contradiction. He said, Lord, what? If he's Lord, put duct tape there. Lord, this that you just told us shall not be. Can't be. We know what Jesus' response was. You get behind me, Satan. The word means, not that he was demon-possessed, but adversary. He said, you're an adversary in what you're telling me right now. You are thinking on the things of men, not the things of God. What in the world? If, if somehow, if we ever can get it into our hearts, who's talking to me? Mary told the servants at the marriage of Cana, whatever, that's a good word, whatever, meaning you got nothing to say about it. Whatever he, because of who he is, whatever he says to you, do it. Or most of it. Or what you feel like doing. Do it. Why? Because of who it is. This is the God who has all authority. Second, ability. Jesus, representing God the Father, has ultimate ability or ableness. There's nothing that he can't do. It says here that by whom? By Christ. The worlds were made. And it says by Jesus. Everything that is created is upheld by the word of his power. That's power. That's power. Jesus has all authority. And he has all ability. When the man, Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, there was a ruckus going on, there was a crowd at the base of the mountain, and there was a weeping father and a son who says was possessed with an unclean spirit. And the father came to Jesus and he said, Can you, know, can you do something with my son? And he used this phrase. He said to him, this is what's been going on with my son. He said, help us if you can. 
And Jesus repeated that phrase. It just says, it doesn't say anything more than just Jesus looked at him and he said, if I can. It doesn't go into much detail, but the clear implication is, what do you mean, if I can? I can do anything. And the things that he can do are so greater than physical things. We're right to pray for health and, and physical issues, temporal issues in this world. We're, we're commanded to. He said, in everything, let your requests be made known to God. So he wants to hear about everything that affects us. But obviously, in life, there are some things more important than others. The fact that God can help our kids with a strep throat, I'm really grateful for that. That used to kill people. But it doesn't compare to taking bitterness out of heart. Taking covetousness out of a soul. Transforming my heart, my mind, my direction, my affections. That, that takes ability. And God is able. There's nothing too hard for him. Nothing. I just read the other day, and, you know, I, someone, I can't even remember who it was, Maybe it was just even last Wednesday or Sunday. But somebody talked to me and said, I've just quit watching the news. I'm in the grip of something that I, 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 I got to know how bad things really are. <laughs> um, so I watched the news. And then what does that do? Well, that puts you into some kind of a hole where you have to work your way back out of it that there is still a God and He knows what He's doing. And... I just remind myself of, he said, I, I nullify the plans of the nations. I basically, I squelch the strategies of the peoples. There's a little phrase in, the, in Proverbs that I love. Very simple little sentence. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. <laughs> Don't try to cook something up against God. The problem is he knows your he knows you're planning it before you even try it. He's got advanced knowledge. And he knows how to just trip us up, and nullify the whole thing. So I'm in God's hands. I'm not in. I'm not in the hands of men, really. Yes, men, governments, societies can hurt us. They can be a hindrance to us. But he said, I'm keeping you. The angel of the Lord encampeth around those who fear him and delivers them. That's who we have. He's able. There's a third thing that we see in the life of Jesus that is a reflection of the Father, of our God, and that is anguish. 
Jesus, Jesus' whole life, personality, experiences, all was encapsulated in Isaiah. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he wept. He wept at Lazarus' grave. Why would he weep? He knew what he was going to do. He's going to raise him from the dead. Place would go nuts. He wasn't weeping because Lazarus died. He knew he was going to resurrect him. He wept over the weeping that was going on, the sorrow, death, the mess of this world. And he, he looked at all of these people, weeping and wailing and grieving. That's what he wept over. Oh, the mess of this world. The heartache of this world. He wept over it. Charles Wesley wrote a tremendous short hymn, <clears throat> Depth of Mercy, Can There Be Mercy Still Reserved for Me? Can my God his wrath forbear me, the chief of sinners, spare? Then it gets down to a final verse. There for me my Savior stands, holding forth his wounded hands. God is love. I know, I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. Jesus knows grief like no one else. Anguish. How many times in the scripture do we find the phrase, and they grieved him, or it says he was grieved at his heart. I don't understand some of the things, obviously, in the mind of God. But when things got so depraved on earth, it said God was grieved at his heart that he made them. And it, speaking of Israel, when he judged them, even though they deserved it, and he, in his justice, had to do it, he said, it grieved my heart. God knows anguish, sorrow, grief. And here's what I want us to think about. By the help of God and the gritting of our own teeth to go through whatever, may I not grieve him. That's the true motive. Really, hell is a pretty good incentive to obey God because it's real. But by far the best, best motive is I don't want to grieve him. I don't want him to be disappointed in me. 
He knows anguish. I don't want to add to it. Fourth, we have to face this, anger. You know, we've got this notion that Jesus, you know, just was kind of limp-wristed and he just went around with his hands folded and was just really nice. You don't want to get on God's bad side. You know that? The Lord restrains. You know what the word long-suffering is used often about God? It says he has long-suffering. It literally means to restrain a passion, specifically anger. So God checks his own anger in patience while he keeps trying to reach us. But we read in Scripture that there's coming a day, says his wrath will come up in his face. Have you ever read that? And it says he will rise off of his throne and shake terribly the whole earth. And Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said, We've, we have come to Jesus to be saved from the wrath to come. In the synagogue in Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and they had a deeper sense of distrust and suspicion and disregard for him. This is a carpenter's son. Where do you get all this? There was the man, he said, who had a withered hand in the synagogue. And it said the Pharisees, this is unbelievable to me, the Pharisees whispered among themselves and looked upon Jesus to see, quote, whether he would heal that man on the Sabbath. I, I, I'll never figure that out. You've got the power. They seen enough of it that they saw this man with the withered hand and he's before Jesus and they're thinking, I wonder if he will make him whole on the Sabbath when you're not supposed to do any work. That's, I, that's, I can't even get a hold of that. If he can heal somebody, I'm going to shut up about what day he's doing it on, for goodness sakes. It's unbelievable. Jesus has said, knowing their thoughts, it says, he looked around the synagogue at them with anger. The notion that Jesus, you can just kick him in the shins and it's okay. Don't try that. He's God. Yes, he's patient, merciful, loving, kind, and restrains his anger. But there's coming a day when not only at the end day he'll pour it out, but the conviction that you and I feel in our lives here today if we disobey the Lord is just a small serving of his wrath. Psalm 7 just makes this statement. God is angry with the wicked every day. 
If he will not turn, he says, I will draw my bow and I will set my arrow, meaning I've got you in the crosshairs. You better wake up. Behind all of God's works with us, we have to remember, is his just wrath against rebellion. And he will, he will be just. Anger. Five, affection. Just read the other day in my normal reading, reading in Mark, where, you know, people, parents were bringing their little children to Jesus. And the disciples said, get, get rid of these kids. <clears throat> and it says, Jesus, there, here's another place. He was, the King James says, sore displeased. Other versions say he was indignant at the disciples because they wouldn't be bothered with these kids. And it says, Jesus took them up into his arms and held them, laid his hands on their heads, and blessed them. That's the God we have. I read too, I don't know why I'd never particularly seen this, reading a different, little bit different version, just a couple days ago in Mark. The story of the rich man that came running to Jesus and he said, Lord, what do I lack I want eternal life, and I sense I lack something. What do I lack? Jesus answered him, says, well, you know the commandments, and he named them. And the man said back to him, he said, Lord, I've kept these from my youth. And then Jesus looked at him, and it says, it says in the, the old New American Standard Version, it says, Jesus looked at him, and felt a love for him. Also it says, they pulled up to the shore, the disciples rowing a boat, taking Jesus to cross the Galilee Sea. They came to shore and it said there was a great crowd. And it said Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We have a, an affectionate God. He loves us with all of his heart, obviously enough to die for us. So he expressed affection. The sixth thing, authenticity. Now let me explain what I mean there. Truth-telling. That same rich man that Jesus, it says, he felt affection. I want you to think with me here. He felt a love for him. What did he do? Though he loved him, and it, he felt it. He's God, which means he has foreknowledge. He looked at that man for whom he had a feeling of love in his heart, and he said, here's what you lack. Sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor, 
He says, you come and follow me. A lot of people think, commentators think, he could have been calling him to be one of his 12. We don't know that for sure. But the language is peculiar there. Sell everything, and you come and you follow me. And it, the, that version says, and his face fell because he had great riches. Didn't need to say the next sentence we can supply that he loved his riches more than eternity. So here's the thought, and it says he left, and Jesus never chased him. Jesus is a truth teller, even though he loves us, not in spite of that love, but because he loves us, he'll tell us the truth. And in that case, he knew that the truth would drive that guy away. We don't have a record if he ever turned. We don't know. But the feeling of love for this man did not trump truth. I could spend a lot of time here, which we don't have, and I won't. But we're today, we have elevated what we call compassion, which is not true. It's a, it's, it's a perversion of the term compassion. But because we are compassionate, we don't say the truth. We don't tell people the truth. And what we've actually done is we have, we have taken the second commandment, which is entirely based on the first commandment. Love God with all your heart and your neighbors yourself. Loving God with your whole heart dictates to us what we condone, what we don't condone, what we'll put up with, what we won't put up with, what we may separate over. So, Jesus never lets his clear love cut him off from speaking the truth. He knew he'd drive this man away, but he had to tell him, because it's true. Finally, what did Jesus reveal about the Father? Atonement. <clears throat> it says here that when he had provided for the purging of sin, the purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And thus fulfilling what he said on the cross, it is finished. Atonement has been made. The Father's plan to redeem a rebellious people, rather than letting us go, just consigning us to hell, not bothering with us. He said, I love them. I will save them. I will provide for them a way out of their rebellion and back into my favor in my fellowship. That's the heart of the Father, who so loved the world that he gave his Son. Jesus, then, we have Jesus, which means we've seen the Father. We've seen the heart of God. We can know him. Let's bow our heads. I just want us to be humble, grateful, probably beyond words for what God's done.
to reveal himself unto us. Father in heaven, I know this morning that I'm not the only one who humbly looks toward the cross in so many different aspects. But this morning to see the heart of the Father through the Son and to have us experience, for those that have experienced salvation, have us experience the indwelling of, the Holy, of your Holy Spirit to reveal your heart to ours to remind us of all the things that Jesus revealed to those he walked with so long ago. So, Father, we have absolutely no excuse not to walk well with you other than we just don't want to. So help us to line up in obedience to all the things that you provide us and all who you are. And may we walk well before this fallen world that we might be a hope, that they might ask us, what's the difference between you and everyone else? Why so much light in the midst of so much trouble? And we can tell them why. It's because the Father so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten Son. And when the Son ascended into heaven, we have the Holy Spirit now to remind us of all the things that we need to know to walk well by your grace to your glory on the side of heaven. Help us to be that church, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.